0: Iowa caucuses just a few days away, I thought this would be a good time to devote the entire episode to just progressive candidates that I've been talking to over the course of a number of weeks, and there will be many more to come in the weeks ahead. Today, you'll hear from three women candidates, two who are running for Congress and one who is running for a state house seat. This is Jonathan Tosini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for January 29th, 2020. My regular listeners know that this podcast is sponsored by the American Postal Workers Union, which fights for dignity and respect on the job and decent pay and benefits and safe working conditions for its 200,000 United States Postal Service employees and retirees and nearly 2,000 private sector mail workers. Of course, you can catch this podcast all over the internets on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, you name it. And of course, on the Progressive Radio Network, Thursdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. We depend not just on our major sponsor, but on small financial supporters like many of our listeners. So if you haven't done this already, please go over to workinglife.org and click on that podcast tab and look for our link to Patreon so you can become a financial sponsor of the show at whatever level you can afford. Morgan Harper is running for the Democratic nomination in the 3rd Congressional District of Ohio. It's an overwhelmingly Democratic district with Columbus, the biggest city. And she's challenging an incumbent do-nothing Democrat. Among her gigs was a three-year job fighting for consumers at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, that is the agency that was essentially the brainchild of Elizabeth Warren. One thing I love doing these chats with candidates is learning something new. And per Morgan's website, I learned these two disturbing facts. Columbus is the second most economically segregated metropolitan area in the country, and its kids, likely because it's been economically segregated, suffer from some of the highest rates of asthma in the country from a combination of poverty, pollen, and just bad air quality. Morgan's website is morganharper.org, and she joins me now. Now, your district, Morgan, is mainly the city of Columbus, which is in the Ohio Valley. And one of the things I noticed in your vast progressive list of policies and views on your website, and I encourage my listeners to go to Morgan's website, which is morganharper.org, is that you are in what you call the, quote unquote, asthma belt. And you say on your website, the combination of poverty, poverty, pollen and air quality affects us at a disproportionately higher rate compared to other cities in the U.S. Now, of course, in my mind, I didn't think necessarily of Columbus as the one or the city that I would think of as one of the places that has or is central to an asthma belt. And I wonder if that's a combination of geography, the industry that's in the area, or the simple fact that you have much worse laws in terms of monitoring and taking care of the environment uh,
1: you know i mean i think it's somewhat a combination of those things not so much industry because columbus is a little bit more of a professional services town where like as you said uh, a lot of the third district is in the city of columbus but there are a couple other inner ring suburbs that make up the district but I would say it also is 100% connected to the lack of reliable public transportation in the region, and so most people to get around are relying on cars, and as we know, that <laughs> contributes to emissions. And so, uh, yeah, very very poor air quality for what you know is not an industrial area, but due to just you know the lifestyle here of not having the public transportation, and there hasn't been that investment in public transportation to get people off the roads and in individual cars.
0: And then so is that part of what you hope to do as a member of Congress, obviously, is to try to get more investment in transportation? Is that the simple solution there?
1: Well, it's one of them. I mean, so I'm backing the Green New Deal. That is one of the policies that we've had on the platform since day one. And, you know, as I'm talking to people throughout the third district, I break that down into a few key points because most people – you know, unfortunately, haven't heard that term before, but they know climate change is happening, and they are feeling the effects, the very practical effects of the poor air quality here, um, due to you know in in the form of asthma and other you know pollution-related issues. And so, but they see, and I'm trying to present that this is a policy idea that would create higher-paying jobs in the clean energy sector that would also build out public transportation. And when you start to talk about that, people's eyes light up because Transportation is a huge frustration here. It's connected to mobility uh, in the in the practical sense of the word, but also in terms of economic mobility. This is, you know, among the most economically segregated places in the country, and people have a hard time getting around to different jobs, uh, spending a lot of money on gas. That is. Disproportionately affecting those who are earning lower incomes, and so you know, really, people are ready for more transportation solutions. But we have to have that injection of resources to build it out.
0: Hmm. Since you mentioned economic segregation, I did a little research and I realized that the unemployment rate in Columbus, in the district, is twelve percent, which is which is pretty high. Obviously, compared to the national average, of course, the unemployment figures the ones that are typically cited as the quote unquote official unemployment statistics don't really take into account what it actually takes to make a living and to pay your bills in this day and age, not just in your district, but all across the country. And I noticed that among several things that you cite as the things you want to bring and advocate for are both universal income and federal minimum living wage. So let's start with the universal income. What does that mean to you?
1: So that means that instead of making people jump through a lot of hoops to get a very minimal amount of money to help cover their expenses, that we would just give people, you know, for example, $1,000 a month because we know. And for me, this is coming from a place of, you know, having worked in the federal government at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, having access to the research that shows that it's often as little as $400 shortfalls that are derailing families and individuals financially. This doesn't need to be the case. We have a very bureaucratic structure to get people resources. Wages have stagnated here in central Ohio in the midst of economic growth otherwise. And we need to be plugging the gaps for people so that it doesn't lead to eviction, having to get expensive and predatory loans, and and not being able to access housing. So just some base level of income, $1,000 a month, uh, would help to ensure that, that people don't get into that financial predicament, which could be very difficult to bounce back from. So that was a pretty important issue to put out there on the platform for me. And then, you know, I agree with you. We have to be honest that the minimum wage in the state of Ohio, it's about to go up to $8, a whopping $8.70 an hour, but you need to be making almost $18 an hour in order to afford a two-bedroom apartment. And that's just housing, right? You know, not not taking into account food and gas, like we were talking about before, to get to that job that's maybe only going to pay you like 9 or $10 an hour. And so- We really need to be thinking not just about a minimum wage, about a living wage. To me, that has to be more in the realm of over $20 an hour to cover people's expenses. And really what these are all connecting to, all the policy ideas that I have as part of the platform, is it's not that complicated what we know people need to lead a stable life. Housing, earning enough money to live, being able to have access to to good health care. And we need to stop kidding ourselves that we've gotten there or that anyone is actually getting a fair shot. if those Buckets are not met, and we have the resources and the ability to pull off getting people all of those basic needs met. It's just going to take a different set of people. In Congress at the federal level that's focused on getting it done.
0: And I really love that point you made that it actually takes $18 an hour in your district to pay the bills because even the great people who are, have been advocating for a long time at the fight for 15, and I really admire that whole organizing and the way in which fast food workers have put together that national campaign that has put $15 an hour on the national agenda and everybody talks about it. The fact is, and you are totally right that if you look at productivity over the last 30 to 40 years and i make this point on this podcast time after time the minimum wage should be well over 20 dollars an hour and really this is really what we come down to is that the the best job that you can get is really a unionized job because the federal minimum wage is really just the bottom feeder if you will it's just the the the, the level at which people should have a living wage or a wage that buttresses them when they're not in a union, but the only real solution is to have a unionized workforce
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly right and we've gotten away from that as well you know having as many uh, union jobs, but also making sure that unions are inclusive you know I know here locally as well we've had a lot of communities of color, particularly people from the black community that have not had access to those types of union jobs and so a focus for sure for me is, you know, that the jobs are created, that they are unionized, but that they're also inclusive of uh, the black community, which it makes up about 30 percent of the district.
0: Now, you made a really excellent point and referenced your experience at the Consumer Financial Protection Board and the way in which that board and your job was about defending consumers, defending regular people, especially in the area of finances, and by contrast, your opponent in the primary. And I want to remind my listeners that this district is a D plus 19 District. So it is the perfect place to have a contest in the primary and have a progressive run against an incumbent who, in this case, and I'm speaking of Joyce Beatty, unlike Morgan, who comes from a p- perspective of defending consumers, she is just awash in Wall Street money, insurance companies, banks, financial services. I looked this up, and well over half of her over half a million dollars in PAC money. 60% of her PAC money comes from Wall Street financial interest and she sits on the Financial Services Committee which obviously the reason she's getting all this money from the banks and from Wall Street is because she sits on a committee that they have an interest in. And I'm wondering if that contrast is something that you bring up when you talk to voters and whether that resonates with them.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people are surprised to hear it and this is something that isn't so unique in in some ways to this district. I think we have a lot of people in Congress who are awash in the corporate money, who take a lot of PAC money and they have been bought for a generation since campaign finance got out of control. And that tracks pretty well when people stop having any expectations for Congress getting anything done, right? None of this is an accident. And so when I point out to people, yeah, you know, we have a Democrat in office because a common question will be, you know, why are you running against another Democrat? It's like, well, not all Democrats are created equal, and right now we have a representative that is taking a ton of PAC money from the financial services industry, that blocked payday lending regulation at the state house, like you're saying, while her, her spouse was a registered payday lending lobbyist, and has introduced legislation in Congress that makes it easier for auto lenders to charge people of color higher interest rates, weakening the CFPB's authority to prosecute them. This is not this is not a situation of, wow, you know, this is the best Democrat we could possibly get to represent a D plus 19 district. Right. We need to be looking critically at our representatives. And I understand most people don't have the time to get into the details, but I connect those dots and people are surprised to hear it. But also thinking like, hmm, yeah, we can do better. And one of the messages that has resonated most, I'd say, across you know, all different people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, ages is I'm not a politician never run for anything before. And I'm not taking any corporate money. And people really get that because they know if you're taking that money, you're bought. And if you're bought, you're not free to fight for us. And that's what everybody in Washington is like. And they're ready for something different.
0: And so this is a good transition to the other topic I wanted to raise with you, which is racial justice. And you point out that the black poverty rate in Columbus is 50% higher than the average. And You also point out the median net worth in the U.S. for a black family is now $9,000 compared with $132,000 for a white family. And when we talk about net worth... The reason that's important is because aside from your income, your net worth is often what you can rest back on if you have an emergency, a family emergency, if some crisis happens, God forbid, you lose a job. Well, black families don't have that cushion. And so that leads you to a discussion about systemic reparations. And that's been discussed a little bit in the public arena. There's sort of a variety of opinions. Let's form a committee. Let's begin studying this. Do you have a specific proposal have you thought through what that would mean? Or what is it your vision about how you approach reparations?
1: Yeah, I think we definitely need to move beyond the point of studying it. So that is where Congress has been at for a while so oh, We can have a commission, we can study, you know, the justification for reparations. Like, no, all of the history is there. If you're questioning any of that history, I I really challenge you to just go to the internet and it'll all be there before you that there's a history in this country of denying wealth building opportunities for black people and it needs to be remedied. And that's why we have the data point that you just mentioned of the racial wealth gap, which by the way, is projected to go to zero for black families by 2053 after 400 years in this country. And so to me, you know, I say systemic reparations because a lot of times people start checking out when you hear reparations, it's like, Oh, well, that's slavery, that was a long time ago, or my family just got here. We didn't own slaves, so I don't have anything to do with that. It's like, no, no, no. We need to be thinking a lot bigger than that, Honest and being honest about what has occurred, how discriminatory housing policy that went well into the 21st century, that some would argue is, you know, continuing to go on. And so we just need to start thinking about what are the solutions to remedy this. And I have lots of ideas, and people actually are presenting ideas to me since we've been campaigning. But that could look like waiving property taxes for elderly homeowners and formerly redlined communities. Why are they continuing to pay taxes as now these communities are gentrifying, home values are finally rising after a generation of disinvestment, and they're going to get displaced from their homes because they can't pay property taxes. This is crazy. You know, so that's one idea that has been floated around that I think, you know, certainly ties very directly to housing policy discrimination, which has led to the racial wealth gap, homeownership being one of the primary ways that people in this country generate wealth and have assets to pass on to the next generation. But there's there's other ideas that have come up. Some people, you know, have mentioned the baby bond concept. Should there be uh, a bit of, of money that is distributed to black children upon birth that would rise in value over the course of childhood. And then you have an asset when you turn 18 that could be used for college to start a business, because that's another real impact of this racial wealth gap, that not just impacting those that are at the lower income or wealth levels, but also even middle class black families that have been subject historically to this discrimination don't have as much capital available to take risks, start businesses uh, entrepreneurship being another way that wealth is generated. So I, I think that we can you know have a very robust conversation in Congress about what some of these solutions look like. But we're starting now by educating folks about the need for this remedy, because it, it does connect to some of the differences in outcomes and the poverty rates like you referenced that we see in a real time in our community. And there is something that we can do about it.
0: Hmm, That was very well stated, especially the point you made that we don't really need to have a committee to study about whether it's a problem. It's really now the time to move this very quickly to, okay, what are some concrete solutions just as you outlined several of them? And maybe people will come up with different ones that end up with a good package, if I can use that term, but we don't need to sit around and say, is this a problem? We know it's a problem already.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and that's you know that's a a lot of the the policy topics that we ended up discussing in the campaign. It's it's just being honest, you know. I I think that there's a lack of honesty and transparency in our representatives. In my opinion, it probably does connect to the role of corporate money. But that's what's peop- that's what people are finding so refreshing with our campaign and with a grassroots campaign that's not taking any corporate PAC money is that we have the ability to be free. To talk about what's really going on and what what the pain points are for working people in the third district, and it's so refreshing because most politicians are usually arguing about these facts or no, we're it's good enough that most people have health care. It's like no, even people that have health insurance through their employer are finding it very very difficult to keep up with medical expenses if anything ever goes wrong. Let's just be upfront about the situation here, and it's the role of leadership to actually be forward leaning on those those realities of working people, not the working people to convince leaders that they are experiencing pain points, right?
0: Exactly. So my last question, since you mentioned that you are a first-time candidate and this is your first time running, that's a very powerful point to make to voters. What is it that you found campaigning that has been either surprising to you or difficult? I always like my listeners to hear from first-time candidates because some of my listeners might be, in fact, thinking about running for office. What are the things that are Difficult. Even some of the small things you don't get to eat at the, your favorite restaurant or, or actually at normal times, but, <laughs> but things that you found either surprising, encouraging, just different.
1: Well, on on the encouraging side, you know, we launched this on July 1st. I just felt like it was the right thing to do based on the issues that, you know, I care about and really caring about the people in the third district. I had no idea if anyone would pay attention, if anyone would follow it. I got all sorts of warnings, you know, especially with this kind of controversial race running against another Democrat, that you're just going to get run out of town. And it's really been the opposite. We've had coverage since day one. So many young people excited about the campaign. So many people I'm meeting that are saying, you know, they haven't voted since Obama, or, you know, the early 2000s, and that they they feel energized by being a grassroots movement. So that really has been the best surprise. Uh, you know, but there are challenges, like you say, especially in a grassroots campaign, is we don't have access to unlimited resources. And so even if you have a vision of like, oh, wow, you know, we could, if we had all the resources in the world, we could be doing even more of what we have going on. But we recognize like, okay, it's okay, we build a little bit more slowly. But It's impactful, and I I do believe that it's going to be long lasting. What we're what we're doing in terms of energizing the electorate, and to me, you know, I'm going to win on March seventeenth, twenty twenty. But this is really the work of the next generation, and we've got to start laying this groundwork now and educating folks about what are the policies that are going to transform this economy and make sure it works for everyone. And you know, and and just on the the type of primary race that we're in, it's real. I mean, the machine is real, running against someone who is a uh, stalwart of the Democratic Party locally is is challenging that people are scared to be associated with the campaign, scared to be too supportive publicly, scared to donate and have their name appear on a on a public disclosure. And I, I uh, you know, just have to accept where people are at and still believe in, in the mission of what we're doing and that people will continue to support however they can. But they the machine is real and people fear it. <laughs>
0: Kathy Ellis is running in Missouri's 8th congressional district. It's considered a very big Republican district. Two-thirds of the district is rural with a plus 24 Republican advantage. And not surprisingly, the incumbent is a Republican. But this is Kathy's second shot at this seat, so she's far better known. That she highlights health care as her number one issue is not surprising. She is a licensed clinical social worker with a heavy focus on treating addiction. And you can check out her positions at Ellis, that's E-L-L-I-S, ellisforcongress.com. I noticed, Kathy, that really what stands out among your many accomplishments is that you've worked a lot in the broadly defined healthcare sector. You're a licensed clinical social worker. And so one of the areas that you're campaigning on is universal healthcare coverage. And I'm going to quote from your website, from your statement about healthcare coverage. I fully support moving the United States to a universal healthcare coverage and phasing out over time, private insurance. Specifically, I support Medicare for all, but I am open to any solid policy that moves us towards universal coverage, close quote. So what made me think, to ask you about this is it's a kind of a debate within progressive circles and not just candidates, but generally among activists about whether we should be down the line supporting Medicare for all and no other ideas, no other proposals, just that's the only way to go. Or as you kind of telegraph, if I can use that term, that you would be open and others should be open to gradually getting to Medicare for all. So explain if that's your position and where you're coming from about that.
2: Well, um, yeah. And and what I'm really uh, focused on right now is my district. And so um you know one of the things that as we've been doing um our forums throughout the district is that it's been a a good mix of people that are very concerned about you know losing the good coverage that they have a lot of folks in the in um in labor will, will have you know very good coverage for things and um there're also people that just desperately need to have any kind of health care that they can get that is going to meet their needs. So I'm very much more focused um, rather than on the, the national picture. I'm focused on what right now my district is telling me and what their needs are. And I think that, that realistically, I, I you know, I really like a lot of the the Medicare for all uh, ideas that are being uh uh, put out a lot, and I, you know, there are a lot of people that are very much in favor of that. But I think that, like anything, we have to be very cautious in terms of how we make that happen, so there can be buy into it that we don't have to go back and forth. Like, is Obamacare good? Is Obamacare not good? You know, as we've been, you know, jumping around. I think we need to have um, a, a way that people can feel that okay, we can't go from one day next and make all these changes. um, I think that will get us in trouble. So, um, as much as I would love to see immediately everybody covered. And I believe that, that many, many people will feel that way. I think that if we did it in a way that, um, that, that brought consensus on, it would be much better.
0: So I'm wondering just to follow up, I'm a proud labor member myself. I'm a member of the United auto workers, and that has come up uh, at least in the media discussion and a little bit in the policy debate that union members say, hey, I don't want to lose this great coverage. But I wonder in the conversation that you're having either town halls or community meetings or just one on one, if the conversation also recognizes that when you have this health care coverage Then essentially, oftentimes, and I know this from the bargaining table fights that unions have, you're forgoing wage increases. In other words, there's, from a corporate standpoint, and I know that CEOs are making way too much money, and there should be plenty of money for both wages and healthcare, but from a bargaining standpoint, what happens, and this has happened over the last 25 or 30 years, that the biggest fights at the bargaining table has been around healthcare costs. And employers come in and say, look, we're gonna cut your healthcare unless you contribute more to it, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm wondering if folks realize that if we cover everyone under a national plan, a Medicare for all system, that all of a sudden there will be money freed up at the bargaining table because employers won't be covering folks, won't be paying like crazy amounts of money, For healthcare coverage. And then of course, it'll be a fight to get them to use that money for wages, but at least that money will be there.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that I think is, is, you know, a very important talking point. And a lot of the labor folks that I've talked with, you know, have really been trying to get that. I cross but boy, there's been an awful lot of pushback on it. I don't think they really, I think they just think we're going to get screwed again and then, you know, across the board. And so I can certainly understand that reluctance and that hesitancy. But I think, you know, and that's why, why you know, maybe we can we can graduate this in so that, wait a minute, they say, okay, this this can work. And we can work for, you know, to get that money back in a different way. So, um, you know, I think it's I think it's about just, you know, educating people. I think it's about, you know, putting this as an option out there. In, in in allowing it to percolate, you know, allowing people to really start talking about it. And and I know one of the things that we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be talking about um this issue going forward um in twenty twenty at our forums and, and get very specific about what's the benefit um you know that you would gain and what would you know this person gain. And you know ultimately we're talking about if everyone has healthcare we're talking about how that impacts our economy in such a su- significant way. If you've got healthy people, you're more likely to have a healthy uh, country and, you know, and a healthy economy. So uh, uh, I think there's a lot of of work that remains to be done to uh, to talk to folks about that.
0: And also, it, not only that's a very important point that not only morally will you have. Healthy people, but also their bank accounts won't be empty to pay for healthcare costs. They'll be able to spend it on other things. And so, a very specific thought, and just curious about your view on this again on healthcare. One option to move a little bit more slowly to a Medicare for All program is one that's being proposed by Senator Sherrod Brown from Ohio. And I'm mentioning Sherrod largely because he's a very pro-union person, a very progressive person. He's suggesting just dropping the age of Medicare, of eligibility uh, for Medicare, down to 50 Uh, Kind of along the lines that you're suggesting, which is people would get used to it. They would see, hey, this works, that it's economically viable, and you do it slowly. But surely, I think Sherrod is proposing this largely because he thinks it may work politically within the context of actually having to pass it. What do you think about that?
2: Right. I agree with that 100%. Because, you know, one of the things that I find is that um, the clients that I see are very often, you know, they're in their 50s and And they're just, they keep their eye on that day that they can, they can turn 65 and get Medicare. And, and, you know, it's, it's on one hand, it's kind of funny, you know, we laugh about it a little bit. Oh, I'll be so happy when I get Medicare, But on the other hand, it's, that's a serious thing. And so I think that is an idea that would be greatly embraced by a lot of people because, you know, we're all worried about if we lose our jobs, we lose our coverage. And there are a lot of people who are in their fifties that, companies want to get rid of you know and so um you know that that is is a real strong insurance policy i think um for for people of of you know, in that fifties age group. I think that is an excellent
0: idea. And also, even if there's not companies that necessarily want to get rid of individual people, there are factories or plants that close down. And when you're in your fifties, there's no question there's job discrimination against people who are older. So you're totally right that that would then at least give some comfort and protection for people above 50, who I think are more vulnerable to job discrimination. Just having a hard time finding a good paying job at that age unfortunately that's mm-hmm. that's yeah. sort of the reality yeah. so you are also very much th- Thinking about infrastructure, the Green New Deal, and you quote again in your positions driving around the district, it is clear that we need greater investment in our infrastructure. Now, I live in an urban area. Your district is largely rural, if I'm not mistaken, looking at the map. Mm-hmm. What does that mean in a rural area where the infrastructure is falling apart? I, in a city, you can kind of look and you see the bridges right there that are falling down the roads that have potholes. But from a rural standpoint, what does that mean?
2: Well, I I don't want to generalize about rural areas, although I think we have a lot of commonalities. I I want to give you a picture of my district specifically. My district is the 11 poorest district in the country. It is a 30-county district. And so it took me many, 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 many miles I, I live about four hours away. I live in the district, obviously, to get far the most point of the district. I have um, some roads aren't marked. Um, and when you're traveling uh, across there, what you'll see is we have a couple of interstates that border our uh, sides of our district. And um, when you get into the more mountainous regions, when you get into some of the areas that are in the center of the district... We do not have cell phone service. People don't have internet service. They um, are, you know, very lucky if they have even landlines <laughs> because it is, in, in many places, it is just, you know, it, it is so far from any any city center. So what we're talking about is having bridges that don't fall into the rivers, <laughs> you know, which happens. We're talking about being able to have good roads that we, people can drive the two hours that they need to drive to get health care. Because that's one of the problems that we're also dealing with, is we do not have health care service in so many of our counties. And, the you know, people need to, if you're having a heart attack, good luck. If you have to drive two hours to get there, you may not make it, particularly on a lot of these twisty roads. And to have a central corridor type of road that would, you know, channel us out, extremely so um, you know, those that's the infrastructure that we're really looking at is you know is the basics and roads. You know, we have an infrastructure issue that a lot of the closed, a lot of the schools that we have are closed, and they you know they've just fallen apart. So it's a desperate situation. I can't communicate enough to you how much when I say to people my district is dying, I mean that quite literally because we have an extremely high opioid epidemic. We have one of the highest mother infant mortality rates of anybody in the country in 16 of the counties in our district. We have people that who who are farmers who don't want to lose their land. If they have illnesses, they refuse to go to the hospital because they, they don't have health care. And They go out literally, and, you know, this has happened many times. I've heard the same story. They go out in their fields, and they kill themselves. So we are dying literally in our district from lack of attention, from um, anybody. You know, most people don't understand how hard it is to do anything in a rural area. And so having good roads that can get us (laughs) to a hospital, that can get us to a library, that can get us to school that's a huge thing. And to have the jobs that come along with that would also be that.
0: So you are running in a district that is plus 24 Republican, at least that's what it's rated. So you clearly Mm -hmm. know what the challenge is you've run before you ran in 2018 and got 25% of the vote. What has changed in those two years that gives you the confidence and the sense that things are shifting in the district, knowing that it's still a big Republican district, at least the vote is such, but how are you making inroads when you talk to your neighbors and the people that you're traveling and meeting in those far reaches of the district that you feel gives you a sense that they're open to a new kind of political person, a new representative?
2: Right. Well, in the in the first place, you know, Missouri used to be an almost exclusively Democratic
0: state. Yes, indeed, that's true. It was
2: vi- it was very unusual, and in my county, I live in the, one of the northernmost counties. Up until about ten years ago, it remained that way. Um, a, a, when the gerrymandering occurred by the Republicans, then they really began to chop up what had been really good, solid labor strongholds. So they divided my county into three congressional districts. And so <laughs> I live in the, the, the southernmost part of the county. So we had that to contend with. But one of the things that we did in the last campaign is that we had a really good opportunity to do a lot of organizing. And what you want to understand about this district is that we have a lot of people that that are very progressive. There's nothing in the middle. Conservative, we have progressives. And we have a lot of people that are very engaged, progressive. So we knew that we could establish in each county what the leaders were, who the people were that would would draw people together that would help us in our campaign. And so we had uh, quite a few pockets of those people even the last time around. And what we were looking at about um, running again is we were looking at, are they still there? Are they still activated? And can they draw more people? So what we found to the answer it was the answer to that was yes. So um, we've, we have we have our team captains or our leaders in, in the district. And when that um, long about last January, when I was still kind of fig- trying to figure out whether I was going to do this again, um, I started getting phone calls from the folks from Medicare for all and from NARAL and from Planned Parenthood. And they all asked me, said you're the only one that's ever pioneered in the eighth district to organize it, what can you tell me about how I can get in there? So, what has happened since then is that we now have um, a district that um, there, people are coming in to start organizing with Planned Parenthood, with Naral, with um, Medicare for All, Medicare for All. We had the first um, uh, Pride Day in a Pride Weekend in Cape Girardeau, our largest city. Uh, that has ever occurred. And there were 15 people that showed up. So as a result of the work that we had done, it's opened up this district in a way that hasn't been opened before. In the county where I had my um, campaign office, which was in Cape Girardeau County, um, more Democrats came out to vote than it had ever voted before. So we're seeing these changes. We saw it even, you know, In in 2019, go from red to pink, (laughs) Uh and and now we're you know so we're looking at you know how do we keep moving this forward, and um, I think it was people have gotten very energized, even though it's a very rural area, even though you have very conservative people, when all of the regulations and restrictions on abortion were coming down from our legislature, um, we we had people that became more engaged as a result. So that's that's a very powerful thing. The odd thing about the district is in the 2016 uh primary, uh Bernie got more votes than Hillary did. And even in 2018, we passed four very progressive ballot initiatives in the state and it was carried mostly by the um 8th district which really hadn't you know participated in those in the past. So um, you know, it's, a, it's, it's a red district, but it's there are still those pockets that are very much, I think, very uh, swayable. And so um, that's one of the things that we're going to do. We, we, we did a, a, a bit of a, a research project looking at the individual precincts in each county and looking at who voted and who didn't. What we found is that a lot of Democrats hadn't voted for a pretty long time. So we also found that it was pretty much distributed one-third, 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 you know, one-third Democrats, Republicans, and one-third independents. So we're looking at those folks that um, can really uh, begin that process of seeing that there might be another option other than just basically dying on the vine.
0: So it's a combination to sum up and get your reaction. It's a combination of changing the electorate, meaning getting more people to vote who either don't vote or vote infrequently, and matching that with what might be called populist views, uh, Bernie kind of agenda, an agenda that appeals, and I agree with this, that appeals across the traditional political spectrum because nobody likes corrupt government. Nobody likes to pay through the nose for outrageous healthcare costs. That really appeals to people just based on their interest, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and the other thing is the two major issues in my district are um, one, which is the, is, is health care. But the other one also is, is was something that I just I kept hearing it over and over again. And I thought, OK, that now is the environment, because we are as a rural district. If you look at our district and you cut it in half on the eastern side, you've got the flatlands. You've got the Mississippi River and you've got cotton, you've got soybeans, and you got rice. On the western side of the district, you've got cattle and timber. Two very, very different groups of, of people in terms of their outlook on things as well as certainly what they're what they're farming in their areas. So you know we're dealing with this this very different kind of a a, you know I have a different relationship with the people on the on the southeastern side of the district than I do with the southwestern side. So you know we're looking at a a lot of people, but we still have in both of those areas that good progressive mix um, that are really engaged. And what we've seen since we started running, and in, in basically in you know end of May and June, and in June, we're finding that you know all of a sudden these these Democratic groups are coming to life in these in these counties, and they're having fundraisers, and they're you know they're taking they're taking all the trainings about you know how you get a candidate elected, and they're doing that independently of our campaign. So um, you know that's that's the thing that we're really uh, very appreciative of is just how people are becoming more and more engaged. And you know, I think they've they've just really they've had enough. And they've certainly had enough with the incumbent that's in the district. <laughs>
0: And last but not least, Paige Christman is running for Oregon's House District 42. She is also challenging an incumbent Democrat. A transgender woman, Paige is the electoral and legislative co-chair of the Portland Democratic Socialists of America. And she's also a military vet. And this is interesting. She was the first woman to serve as an indirect fire infantryman, a combat job that had previously been open only to men. You can check out Paige's campaign at page, and that's spelled P A I G E, page2020.com. And one of the things that your campaign is really powering itself on, and really it was the reason, as you state on your website, that you decided to run was this just outrageous action by the Democrats in the legislature. Let's point out to my listeners that since the last election, the Democratic Party has a super majority in the legislature and a Democratic governor. So essentially, the Democratic Party basically can have its will in terms of passing bills. And what they did almost as one of its First actions as a supermajority was to cut the pensions of public employees, which is a corporate Democratic position and certainly a Republican position, but certainly should not be the position of any progressive. And so talk a little bit about how that fired you up to run for this office.
3: Absolutely. It's it's incredibly outrageous that a Democratic supermajority would turn its backs on the public employees that elected them into office in the first place. This Democratic supermajority wasn't easy to win. It was won by hitting the doors and making phone calls. And that was done with large support from teachers unions and nurses unions and the firefighters union. And then for the Democratic supermajority to then go and cut the public employee pensions of some of the most valuable civil servants in our state is just unacceptable. So that's what really pushed pushed me to run in this race. And that's what really launched our campaign uh, was that we, we can't have Democrats doing this. This is what Republicans usually do in other states. But who needs Republicans when you have Democrats like this?
0: And what was amazing was you had even liberals and progressives making the argument that they were doing this because there was some so-called crisis in the public pension funds. And as someone who has written about this and covered this for a long time, I can say that this is one of the false narratives that is put out by both corporations, by Republicans, and by corporate Democrats. There is no crisis in public pensions. Public pensions have some shortfalls, partly, by the way, as you well know, because of the recklessness on Wall Street, because of the economic collapse. In fact, the public uh, pension funds in Oregon were fully funded beyond fully funded before the economic collapse. So basically Democrats, the super majority of Democrats in the legislature, they were putting this crisis on the backs of working people, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. They were. And it's, um, it was totally unnecessary. So in the first place, public employee pensions just last year were funded at 79%, which is about middle of the road for, uh, a state in the United States. Um, there's no state currently in the U.S. that fully funds their public employee pensions. Wisconsin is the closest at 99 percent, uh, but 79 percent is not that bad uh, compared to the rest of the country. But even more so, in 2006, before the economic crash, public employee pensions in Oregon were funded at 111 percent, and when Wall Street took a dip and, and tanked, that's, that's where public, the public employee investment fund lost that money. Um, so it was corporations on Wall Street that lost that money. Uh, it wasn't workers. So it should be corporations that pay for it. If if we are going to um, make up that, that shortcoming, it should be on the backs of corporations and the rich, not on the backs of teachers and nurses and firefighters.
0: Now, the other thing that you're very, very strong on, and it comes from your position and your activism as a tenant organizer, someone who has been defending tenants' rights and has been out there in the community, trying to make sure that actually people can afford housing, that they can afford decent rents, that there basically is housing that is for the people, you've been really out there uh, on that issue. And I happen to note this, and we talked about this before we recorded our segment here. I happen to note that your opponent, Rob Nose, just received, at least it was advertised by the Willamette Week, received $2,500 a contribution from the Oregon Association of Realtors, which clearly shows that, and he tries to portray himself as a liberal, uh, clearly shows that he's in the pocket of realtors, Right.
3: Absolutely. And the Oregon, Association, the Oregon Association of Realtors is typically a Republican PAC. It's typically a Republican funding source, um, but they're donating to these Democrats because they know that ultimately these Democrats are going to stand in their interests. Um, and that's been demonstrated time and time again, especially in Senate Bill 608, which was at the beginning of this last legislative session, where a lot of um, cutouts and exemptions and loopholes were put into the bill for the landlord lobby by Democrats, by Democrats who take all this money from the landlord and realtor lobby. Um, and the $2,500 donation that Nose took from the Oregon Realtors Association um, isn't even the largest amount of money he's taken from the realtor and landlord lobby. It's it's a regular uh, it's a regular amount of money that he receives from that 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 industry um and i don't i don't believe that our representatives can truly work for the people in their districts the tenants in their districts that are that bear the brunt of these housing policies uh, when when they're taking such a large amount of money and funding uh, from people directly opposed to our class interests.
0: And here's the other thing that I noted in on your website. I encourage my listeners to go to Paige's website. It's Paige, P-A-I-G-E 2020.com. That's page 2020com You also point out that the incumbent Democrat, NOS, received thousands of dollars from the fossil fuel industry. And by contrast, you've signed the No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge. So here's a guy, again, who, an incumbent, who claims to be a quote-unquote liberal, but is basically pocketing money from the very interests that are destroying our climate and making it unhealthy for people who live in the community in the district that he represents, right?
3: That's right. And um, he, he takes uh, a ton of money from the fossil fuel industry and also the private healthcare care industry. Um, he receives less than 10 percent of his donations from individuals, which I think is unacceptable. I don't think that we can address the crises we face until we get big money out of politics. And that's why our campaign is 100 percent people powered. We don't accept any corporate donations, which is unique here in Oregon. There's no sitting state legislator that doesn't take corporate money right now. And uh, that's something that we need to bring back to the state because, as Oregonians deserve a democracy that works for them exclusively, not for corporations, not for lobbyists, but just for people.
0: Now, people listening to this broadcast will say, okay, this. candidate sounds great, but will she really fight for us? And I want to point out and talk a little bit about this, your own experience as a transgender woman serving in the military, and you were actually forced out of the military following the Trump administration's trans military ban. It seems to me that that steals someone like you for fights uh, in the legislature with people who are in office now, because you've had the experience of having to actually confront a very, very harsh environment, meaning the U.S. military as a transgender woman. Talk a little bit about that and how that's built your character.
3: Absolutely. That's that's where I really learned to be political, because that fight was very, very political, even down at the local level at my unit, um, in that there's a lot of internal politics in, in Army units, and that was um, – very much leveraged against me in a really brutal, brutal way to um, take away my rights uh, when I was a soldier in the, in the U.S. Army. Um, so I, I learned um, I learned how to um, uh, stand up for myself when I was um, standing up for myself against my brigade commander and my brigade sergeant major, um, something that a, a young corporal at the time like myself wouldn't typically be doing. Um, and that's the kind of experience that um, I'm going to take with me into the legislature. I'm not going to go in there and work for Tina Cotech. this Speaker of the House. I'm not going to go to work for Kate Brown, the governor. Um, I'm going to go to work for the people of my district. And that's, that's reflected in the way we run our campaign, 100% people power, and it's going to be
0: reflected in the way that we run our office. So here you are, you fought in the military as a transgender woman. Now to translate that here to Oregon, to the race you're running, what is it in the state that needs to be done to bolster and support transgender folks who are essentially living always under the threat of um, not having the same rights in the community? What needs to be done and what are you going to carry in terms of that flag, if you will, to the state legislature? Well,
3: one of the most frustrating things that I've had to deal with with the liberals in our state legislature right now is treating trans issues as an issues of interpersonal um, acceptance and treating trans issues as, you know, the most important issues being saying our pronouns and and making sure that we had the right language. Um, But what, what trans people really need here in Oregon is to address the material material manifestations of our oppression. And the biggest one here in Oregon is uh, that trans women are housed in men's jails and prisons as a blanket policy in the state of Oregon. so that, that means that we are exempt to uh, exempt from cruel and unusual punishment, of course, because trans women are, are raped and thrown into solitary confinement at an incredibly high rate in men's prisons. Um, and we are also um, and we also don't have access to due process because we don't need to be charged with a crime to face this punishment. We just need to be arrested by, by a police officer and thrown into a men's jail. And we're already faced with a punishment much more cruel and severe uh, than the cis woman is faced with in our, our criminal system here. Um, So the the militarized police state and the the prison industrial complex are material manifestations of cis-heteropatriarchy that we can name. And if we can name them, we can attack them and we can dismantle them. And that's what we really need. We don't need allies. We need
0: comrades. So this is your second go at running for office. What's it been like being out in the doors? And has there been something different running, say, a couple of years ago to running now in terms of the issues that you're dealing with at the doors, talking to people? Has the environment changed? Is there any difference? And what has it been like?
3: Yeah, it's, it's very different. Um, things have been changing in American politics very rapidly in the last four years. Um, you know, this campaign that we're running, 100% people power, no corporate money, a trans woman running for the state legislature in Oregon, it, it would have been unheard of uh, just four years ago. Uh, that type of campaign uh, would have gotten laughed at just four years ago. It was Bernie Sanders' 2016 race that really unlocked the door for 100% people powered campaigns to to run and be taken seriously. And then in 2018, it was um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib um, and all the other amazing 100% people-powered campaigns that won in 2018 that really blew that door wide open and really made this race possible. Uh, And not only are we taken seriously, but we're also going to win. And that's reflected, I think, when I talk to the people in my community, when we go to the doors. Right now, our field operation is is huge. We have over 350 volunteers. We've knocked thousands of doors already. And we're winning 65% of the voters we talk to at the doors um so we're we're winning when we talk to the voters um the the only barrier to that is are we gonna be able to talk to every single voter? And I believe we can, but money money is what's gonna stop us. And and our opponent has $125,000 cash on hand, uh, and he's getting a lot more money from corporations, and that's what's gonna be thrown up, up up against us to stop us. And our, our counter to that is is people power, and I believe we have the people power to win.
0: And let's underscore what you just said, how the environment has changed, thanks in large part to Bernie Sanders' campaign in 2016. I mean, you are the co-chair of- of the legislative and electoral efforts at the Portland DSA Democratic Socialist of, of America and it seems to me that before Bernie ran as a proud Democratic Socialist, there was would have been a little bit of a stigma it would have been much harder to say up front, hey, I'm a Democratic Socialist, I'm running for the legislature, and it, it really almost took away the ability of someone like your opponent to use that against you because it's become almost a shrug of the shoulders on the part of many voters. I think lots of people are now used to the idea of Democratic Socialism and what that means, Right
3: absolutely and it, there there isn't really much stigma there anymore especially in our district our district's one of the most progressive state house districts in the state and um there's there's not really any red scare, um, visceral reaction in the electorate to democratic socialism, um, especially among young people. More than half of millennials favor democratic socialism over capitalism. Uh, so we're finding that that's an advantage, uh, not a not a liability. And we're not going to apologize for it. We're not going to apologize for fighting for a world where every head has a roof, where every child has a teacher, every family has a doctor, and every worker has a union. That's, that's the world that we're fighting for. And there's no reason we should have to apologize for that.
0: that'll do it for this week's podcast. Thanks to all three of my great, fantastic, progressive women candidates running for both Congress and the state house. That would be Morgan Harper, Kathy Ellis, and Paige Kreisman. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Thanks to our major sponsor, the American Postal Workers Union. You too can become a sponsor of this show. Just go over to workinglife.org, click on the podcast tab, and find your way over to Patreon, and join up as a sponsor at whatever level you can afford. Thanks for listening. Look forward to having you back next week.